couple of things uh, as we get started here. Number one, uh, I never usually manuscript my messages, so if I have like some lacking eye contact today, I apologize in advance, but really um, it just would probably make us all feel guilty anyways, so it might be best that I don't. Second thing is that uh, Kelly and I actually have to catch a flight. We have a, a conference for work. Both of us are going to be at the same conference this week in California. So I'm going to leave shortly thereafter. You know, we are going to try to jet. And that is not having anything to do with the content of what I'm about to say. It's not, term, not trying to get out before anything happens. Uh, my contact information is on our website. I am not hard to get a hold of. Uh, so if you, even if you have my cell phone number, I would give it to you. Just not now because I don't want people on the podcast texting me. Um, mercilessly. So um, I do apologize that we'll have to leave quickly afterwards um, in advance. But I always uh, self-denigrate and tell people that preaching isn't really that difficult a task. And my recent sabbatical here this last year proved it. In our small church, there's many capable communicators and uh, there's a lot of people who can take a text and interpret it and make it real to Christians in the modern world. And again, within this church, there's a lot of talented people who have the ability to do that. That said, there's times when my tongue-in-cheek, anyone can do this thing, has proven to be an exaggeration. And I would say that this week is one of those times. That preaching this morning is a difficult task for me and for other pastors all around our country today. Because like you, our hearts broke for our brothers and sisters in the African-American community when they were faced with yet another tragedy, the killings of uh, two black men, Alton... um, Sterling and Philandro Castile. I'm going to move this stuff by um, by police shootings. And then, if this wasn't bad enough, then that was followed soon thereafter, just the next day, before we had all been able to grasp what had occurred. We had uh, the shooting in Dallas where police officers who were actually escorting a peaceful protest, people who were protesting, the very police officers who were protecting them, who were killed. By a gunman who claimed to have targeted law enforcement, specifically white law enforcement officers, and five police officers died. So there are moments when crafting a biblical message is difficult, and that would be one of these instances. But really, I'm here to tell you, it's, it's not necessarily... You see, I could speak about almost anything this morning and get through this message unscathed. There are 66 Bibles, books of the Bible to choose from, and there's a myriad of things that I could talk to this morning that would actually fit within to this topic. For example, we sent a call to show up a little early. Some of you did. Glad you're here. If not, you know, we know that you still are pro-prayer in this situation, but we prayed about this, and I could give a whole sermon on prayer this morning. Um, or I could go ahead and just pan out, give a microview of the spiritual conflict of our fallen world and all that lies underneath this, that our violence is wrong and it just cries out for our need of a savior. And I can even make just the case that just we're all precious in the sight that any violence is horrible and uh, is a deviation of God's will for humanity. There's a lot I could go through right here and be justified in doing so, but it would be the easy way out for me and there's a, been a, there's a statement that's linked to biblical preaching that I believe summarizes my calling. It's something that happened 10 years ago when we started this church. It, it, it's been a de- an adage that I've lived to, and that is comfort the afflicted, afflict the comforted. And that's where I see myself landing. And what's ironic, by the way, is that that has nothing to do with preaching. It was penned by Finley Peter Doon in 1902 in reference to newspaper industries. 
But still, I think it's a spiritual challenge that is apt. For some of us, we need to feel comfort, but for other us, we need to feel uncomfortable. And you are a good church, and you have been good to me when I preach sermons that are edgy. I, I rarely receive an email from anyone here, you know, just for something I have said. I could count on probably the two hands at times over 10 years that I've received any very negative reaction to something I've said. So this morning, as I attempt to do right by the Word of God and the Spirit of God, I ask for that same extension that you have always offered me. But I do want to use this morning to dive into difficult topics. And as we do so, I want us to be able to stay with the sermon series that we've been preaching through, through the book of Kings, because I think that is applicable. If you've been with us in our study, and if you haven't yet, it's all online on our podcast. But what we look at in these Old Testament books is that there are leaders that God called to lead his people, and they struggle within their leadership. And matter of fact, they actually failed horribly at their jobs. And as we read through that, we can go back and say, okay, there were some bad leaders and you need to be a good leader in God's sight. But what that bad leadership does not do is absolve us, the masses, for our faults. There's enough sin to go around. So last week in our examination of 1 Kings, we noted that there's a son of Solomon. We talked about King David and David uh, basically grew Uh, the, The nation of Israel. Solomon secured it and made it more lavish. And then the son of Solomon, Rehoboam, a middle aged man, was petulant when the majority of his father said, Just give us a break. Your father pushed it so hard. Show us a little mercy. And when he didn't and instead spoke of his own manliness and uttered threats that led to the inevitable division of a nation, map for emphasis. But what we see is that the land that was Israel, all encompassed within those yellow lines, were split into. Two. This was all about a thousand years before Jesus was born. And the area to the t- north in the orange was what became known as Israel. The area to the south in the green were the combination of two tribes. It became known as the kingdom of Judah, but was also including the tribe of Benjamin. So what we are lo- focusing on this morning is that orange area, the kingdom to the north. What happened after Rehoboam was petulant and this split happened? And we mentioned the name of this leader just briefly last week, but it's the name of a leader, Jeroboam. Not at all confusing, right? You have a Rehoboam and a Jeroboam. We'll try to keep those straight. It's the plight of this younger teacher I want us to look. And understanding this too, you need to understand that in God's omniscience, he knew exactly what would happen. He understood the pig-headedness of those who had... Uh, been given the option of Rehoboam, he knew it would end up this way. But most importantly, what we see here is that Jeroboam, who would rule over these kingdoms, had a word from the Lord through a prophet and was told that everything for him would be okay. I want to start and I'm going to read for us this morning. First Kings chapter 11, verse 38. If you have a blue Bible, I believe it's page 248. And this is what a prophet said to this young man, Rehoboam. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 38. He said, if you do whatever I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and commands as David, my servant, did, I will be with you 
I will build a dynasty for you as enduring as the one I built for David, and I will give all Israel to you. This is what we described in previous weeks as an if-then scenario. We see this throughout the Old Testament. God says, if you just keep my command, then I will bless you. You will be on the receiving end of numerous blessings if you will just stick with me. Understand, this promise exists for us, but it's not about our temporal glory. It's not about in the here and now. Because we always want to reinterpret the scripture and say, okay, if I just do what God wants, then everything in my life is going to be beautiful and grand. And we aren't promised it there. We're promised it in an eternal sphere. So sometimes, as many of us know, difficulties happen. And it's not just because you're not obeying the Lord. Sometimes we can obey him. And because we live in a fallen world, bad things happen. Okay? But here in the Old Testament, there was this different aspect. This is a promise. This was a promise given to Jeroboam that if he would just do what God asked, the monarchy of the northern kingdom would, would continue on and then it would be his dynasty. Instead of us knowing who King David was, we might know who King Jeroboam was. And in all of this, there was this fleece-like moment where God, in the midst of the promises, you can read to that, says, trust me, this is going to happen. You're going to become king. He wasn't king. This was a piece of prophecy. So God basically said, listen, when I make you king, follow me and it'll work out. So that first thing, the if, was I will make you king. It happened. So he had a promise from God that was fulfilled. So therefore, there was one other aspect that God said, just do what I ask you to do and everything's going to be great but he could not maintain that flip to the next chapter first kings chapter 12 and we see the inner dialogue of a man who doesn't trust promises jeroboam thought to himself the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of david if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the lord in jerusalem they will again give their allegiance to their lord rehoboam king of judah they will kill me and return to King Jeroboam. Like many of us, Jeroboam's imagination runs away with him. And he's already concerned about this newly formed kingdom. The paint ain't even done drying yet. And he's worried about losing everything that he has. And verse 26 contains a statement of pure speculation. It will now likely. His concern is over something that has not happened. That might not even happen, but he's just assuming this is how things are going to play out and he makes a critical mistake. Even though the God of the universe promised him that he would have an eternal dynasty, he fears that that dynasty will be taken away from him. And I had a map in here somewhere, maybe I don't. But the aspect that, well, I might as well flip back because I have all control. When you look at this map, you understand that the place of worship for God's people at this point was Jerusalem. It was a city just perched on the northern border of Judah. And Jeroboam, who is king over the orange area, his fear is that when people go down to Jerusalem to worship, they'll like it there. They'll be like, hey, that king wasn't so bad. And they'll never return. And what we witness here then, and what Jeroboam observes here in his thought process, is that, look, even though God has given me a promise, even though I trust in him, I really don't trust that much. And he abandons his trust. He got obsessed with what likely could have happened. And again, I have some slides wrong right here. I didn't even get all my slides in here, but let me move forward, see if I can. Slides are all over. This is the thought process that we have in Jeroboam. Well, I'm even, I'm going to go all over the place, people, today. Who knows where this is? Let's go to the next verse, 26 and 27. Let me start here. Stick with me. Did I just read that? 
Sorry, I was focused so much on my words, my slides are lacking. Verses 28 to 30. After Jeroboam sought advice, the king made two golden calves. And he said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And one he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. And the people went even as far as Dan to worship the one there. There's some verbiage there that we should sound, that, that should sound familiar to us. One of that it comes from, and again, I have stuff all over. Let me see, I saw it. Is this verbiage found in Exodus chapter 32? I don't know if you remember the scene or not. The scene was one at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses had been called by God to go up and get the Ten Commandments. The rest of the nation of Israel was supposed to stay and just hang out at the bottom of the hill. But as days turned to the weeks, they began to lack trust themselves. Maybe Moses is actually dead up on the mountain. Maybe he got up there and God just smoted him down. So they said, you know what would be a good idea? We should make some golden cows and worship them. And the very same thing that Jeroboam says right here, the same verbiage exists. It's just like he's repeating the same thing, right? When they said, here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt, Jeroboam said, look, here are your gods. Worship them. And what we see there is a progression. And that's this progression. I don't even know what I'm doing with these slides, y'all, but let me get to this. This is the point I want us to see. This all is formulated out of Jeroboam's insecurity, right? His lack of safety. And in that insecurity, he is moved toward fear. So he is insecure because he doesn't even trust himself. Even though God, think about this, how much you and I struggle with our own self-esteem. We don't necessarily have word from God saying, hey, everything in your life is going to be just fine. Just stick to the plan. We don't have that. And yet he had that and still felt insecure. And it was that insecurity that drove him to fear. And it was a fear that drove him to poor actions. And eventually, and I'm jumping all over, this is what he decides to do, right? Instead of just letting the people worship in Jerusalem, he's like, I'll create up two places of worship. And by the way, the worship here quickly denigrated into pagan worship. So we might even said, oh, this would be great. They can worship God here. But pretty quickly, because of the way that those sites, historical sites has existed, it was all about pagan worship. So what, what he says is, look, I'll set up one in the north, Dan. That way, if you're in the north, people can get him there. And then if you look, if you're in the middle part of the orange area heading to Jerusalem, he puts a high place in Bethel, which is also an ancient historical place where even Abraham offered sacrifices. And he's like, you know what? They might be heading down to Jerusalem, see Bethel, and be like, oh, this is good. And perhaps he even thinks, I'll put something at the southernmost point of the kingdom so that those people in northern Jews will be like, hey, let's try out the place of Bethel. Maybe it's good for everything. He uses then, this as an opportunity to try to secure his kingdom. Basically, he rewrites everything. God gives him a simple promise. Just do what I ask you to do and your kingdom will be secure. And what we see then, and I do have this, is that insecurity that he has about who he is creates a driving fear. And it's that fear that leads him eventually not just to sin for himself, but to all people. Fear led him to sin. Pretty basic biblical message. Our insecurities can develop fear that lead us to sin. Now, how do we bring this to where we are at today? And this is where it gets really fun. Because church, if the lessons of scriptures are here, we must heed guidance. 
And therefore, I believe that this offers us clarity and understanding to what is happening today. So in order to speak to this, I need to speak of a segment of which you may or may not identify. So again, as we talk through this, there's no need to bear upon yourself unnecessarily guilt if this is not you. But I need to talk to many of us white middle class Christians and use this text to set up a conversation about white privilege. So now, even my mention of this might be offensive, right? And I do so to only serve because I believe that it's real. And you might ask, how can you so confidently affirm that a philosophical construct, a sociological theory, is actually true? And I could cite the work of scholars. There's a lot of scholarly work of academics who have developed things on white privilege. But then you could say, that's not biblical, and you're a church preacher, so stick to what you're supposed to stick to. Or I could list off a series of Bible verses that talk about privilege and how the people in power have this. But then the same, that's a systemized approach. And you might say, that's not exactly what the scripture's saying. So don't flex right there. Or maybe I should just lift off my academic credentials and say, I have pieces of paper that prove my brilliance. So suck it and listen. And this is the problem. I don't have an airtight defense of this either biblically, right? Or sociologically. But... I'm going to try to walk us through this morning because it's important for us to realize where we're at. And I think this is important for us here today, especially if you are in this city, because you might not recognize it or not, but this city has white privilege in its DNA. It's our context. We have to understand it. I'm going to prove this by talking about my family's background, so bear with me. Because I've told maybe some of you this story, but I don't know if you know, but my family are not native Cincinnatians. There are some Cincinnati families that come in here from generation to generation. I'm from the west side, and those actually usually go back five or six generations. My family only goes back a couple of generations. In the 1930s and 40s, our country was gripped in the midst of a Great Depression. And because of that depression, there were job issues all over the country. And at that same time, the coal mines in southern Kentucky began to dry up. And the work wasn't there. So my grandfather decided to move his family from southern Kentucky as Appalachian rural hick folk and move them into Price, into actually the only neighborhood in which Cincinnati where they could go. One of the few white ghettos that were left at that time into lower Price Hill. And through my involvement with CCU, I've actually had a good opportunity to get connected with Block Ministry in Cincinnati. I don't know if you're familiar with Block Ministry. They do have a coffee shop up in uh, East Price Hill, but then also they have transferred the nature of Lower Price Hill. So I've had many of an opportunity over the last 15 years to actually walk the streets of Lower Price Hill. And friends, it's still a sight to behold. Actually, I used to just even recently, I was thinking about this, I, teach, I taught urban ministry, and I would take my students down there, and the last time we got down there, there was a full, like, four-corner yelling match between people calling each other bitches, whores, everything, just right in the midst of it, and I have this nice group of Christian people with me, and, you know, as much as there was this scene, I had to ask myself, really get down to this, is that how am I not here Because it's funny that even the people of the neighborhood, I was like, I kind of identified with them because they were, I swear, they reminded me of my cousins. They reminded me of my family. And what happened was my grandfather's family was able to escape out there. My dad always jokes when he lived down there, lived on the third floor. So they weren't really in lower price. So they were in upper price automatically. But then they moved up to Considine Avenue and up there, I showed my wife the other day. Now it's a house that somebody has renovated. It's a gorgeous house. But at that time, they were able to get out of the valley and escape poverty and find some sort of middle class existence. 
I love that story and I share it a lot because it fits into a narrative that I like to believe about hustle. I, I love hustle. I tell my daughter about this all the time. I tell people the thing that will separate us as individuals is our effort of work that we put into something. It's like it's the, it's known sociologically as the Protestant work ethic, but it's something that we like to believe, right? Pick up your bootstraps, get to work down and do it, and you can persevere. And I love to say that because that was my family's DNA. All we did was work, work, work. And for me, it was like that fits into this nice narrative. But in doing so, the narrative is a little too tidy because it allows me to neglect this simple fact that because my family bore the pigmentation of power, they were able to do that much easier than somebody else would. Because... My family moving out that was able to purchase houses in certain neighborhoods where black families were not. My family was able to secure financing, whereas somebody that was just as driven in a black community might not have had that advantage. And that's difficult for us to see sometimes, but to understand how that affects then our ability to transcend our current place. Can I tell you one other story from my childhood? And it's funny that these little stories come out, but then you're like, maybe there's something more to it. But I remembered this clearly, is that we were at a work night at our urban church in Price Hill, and my dad would drive his work truck everywhere, and he'd throw his three sons in the front of the work truck. And back then, in the early 1980s, there weren't seatbelt laws, Right? So we're just hanging out in the front of the truck and we're leaving from Queen City Avenue going up Harrison Avenue and the police pull us over. And again, when you're a young person, maybe this is why I remember it, is that we didn't get pulled over a lot, but I remember this time securely, just specifically, because the officer came to the door with his flashlight and flashed it in at us. And he started to talk to my dad. He's just like, well, and he's just like looking around. He goes, these kids up here, they don't have seatbelts. On, and they really should have seatbelts, which is funny because this is before seatbelt laws, right? So he's doing it. It didn't even occur anything until the next morning. My dad was like reading the paper. He goes, oh, that's why. And he said, that's why we were pulled over last night. I remember asking, what do you mean? And he goes, somebody had robbed the store with a red truck with a ladder on it. And that's what I drive. So they pulled us over. Yes, we were profiled, right? And you might be like, that's just an ordinary thing. You know, that just happens, right? The police are trying to do due diligence. They see this happen. But here's the interesting thing. And especially at the events over the last couple of years, never have I had to think about that moment within that concept of fear. You understand that? Like I was, I don't even think back of that fear. I was just like, it's the police. What did my dad do? You know, it was over. Oh, okay, that happened. But I know black families. I have friends who have children with driver's licenses that fear that when their kids get pulled over, they could die. Now, you might be like, well, that's, don't commit crime, don't hit friends. This is the problem. If they have that fear, pastorally, as believers, it's something that we should reach out to and think of and try to identify. Why do they have this fear? And friends, it's because this is not self-indicting, right? This is not to say, well, if I'm, you know, if I am in this situation, then I am culpable, but it's something that we need to grapple with. Let me just even go on beyond our current situation to this for us to worry about it as far as this is concerned. If they have this, this fear in their lives, okay, People made in the image of God 
are loved by God and are worthy of our love and compassion and our empathy and even our identification. Let me talk a little bit about our city. And I've, by the way, I've studied so much about the city of Cincinnati when it comes to race. I did this long ago. I actually did an entire sermon of it about seven years ago here at church. But really quickly, one of the things that, you know, always hurt me or it made me proud when I was younger is I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm from Ohio. It's a northern state. It's not like Kentucky where they had slaves. It's like we were, we were on the right side. They were on the wrong side. And then the more you study history, one of the things that you understand is that Cincinnati actually grew to be the fifth most influential city in the United States right as of the Civil War. And the reason that there was a considerable drop-off after the Civil War is because a lot of the industry that created Cincinnati was work done by slaves to the south. They would manufacture goods up here. This was a place they could sell them, and fortunes were made. So again, I wasn't alive, so I can plead the fifth on all that stuff. However... There is some culpability. The city that I love today and its prominence is partially in existence because of slavery. Friends, I don't know if you've ever read the study about this. In the first decade of the 19th century, the state of Ohio on two different occasions passed black laws. And specifically these black laws was that if you were an African-American free living in Ohio, you had to find somebody that could vouch for you to the extent that they would sign a letter that said $500 would be paid if you actually weren't free. Which created a whole new business for banks because nobody had $500. That that would be like the equivalent of you having to pay $25,000, $30,000 today. So there's a whole industry that was started in Ohio for free blacks that had to go to banks and make sure that if something happened to them... They would have the money to pay. Otherwise, they would have had to leave the state altogether. There was a series of race riots that occurred in the 1820s, 30s, and 40s. My, the most interesting one is the one in 1841 because, again, there was a slight little, uh, it was a, a recession. There's a point where joblessness hit, and the inquirer speculated that the reason nobody has jobs, the reason nobody has jobs, the newspaper speculated, is because blacks are stealing all white people's jobs. And by the way, parenthetically, this is why as much as I like the Cincinnati Inquirer, someday it's going to close and I'm not going to shed a tear because the sins will always find us out. And it started a full-blown race riot. And our concept of race riot might have been formed in the watch riots of the 1960s or in the, you know, in the South Central riots of the 1990s. But this riot was actually white people going to black communities and burning everything to the ground and friends this happened on more than one occasion just one last story because i could do hours on this but here in walnut hills by 71 you can see where they're doing the construction there's a bunch of row houses i don't know if you've ever noticed it it's just south of walnut hills high school just north of where all the construction is these houses were built by a man named jacob schmidlop and jacob schmidlop was a wealthy man and there's other things all around cincinnati that bears the schmidlop name And he was wealthy, and one of the things he was committed to is trying to bring up the the quality of life for African Americans in the city. And what he built in in 1911, these houses, he started building them, were here in Walnut Hills. So it's on the northwest quadrant of this neighborhood. And it was the first housing in the city of Cincinnati for African Americans that had indoor plumbing. And you might be like, okay, that's 100 years ago. Friends, indoor plumbing had come into a realization decades before. But there was a popular thought and concept within this time that blacks wouldn't know how to use indoor plumbing, so we can't give it to them. Just 50 years ago, blacks were finally granted full civil rights in our country. 
And last summer, less than a mile here, an African-American man was pulled over by university police, even though he was a good mile or so away from campus. And you can argue his actions and how he responded, but he was pulled over because he didn't have a front license plate. And friends, that's a law in Ohio, and I've been driving in this neighborhood for 10 years. After somebody hit mine off, I don't have one. My wife's car, I don't have one either. And again, we might say, well, he shouldn't have made any movements or something. And friends, this is the thing, is that you and I can't relate to this because some of us have this concept where, no, we trust police, we're there. And one of the reasons why we have this, and it's not about police, recognize this. I have friends in law enforcement, we have this conversation. That's the bad part about all of this stuff, is bad cops give great cops a horrible name, and then they have to deal with this. There are some amazing police in Cincinnati. In our district here, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of them. They're some amazing people. But the thing is, too, is, you know, one of the reasons I can do that is because of my color pigmentation. I don't usually fear that if I'm talking to a police officer that something bad could happen. Proverbs chapter three eighteen I think, speaks to this. I'm going to give you this text, but you need to stick with me at the end because I want to add a postscript to it. But the text in scripture says this speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves for the rights of all who are destitute and i'm applying to this to the current situation so i have to say this i'm not saying then that blacks do not have the voice to speak in today's society they have it more so than ever before i'm also not saying that they're destitute because the institutional poverty that still exists within the african-american community is great but it is actually declining So the one thing about this society, and I think it was even mentioned this morning within prayer, is that in the past 250 years, we are becoming better. Our society is gaining, right? It's a good thing. I can cite two examples. One is just the idea that the current commander-in-chief of the United States is an African-American man. And that's unprecedented. You know, the second was a conversation I had to have my, or tried to have with my daughter this last week. Because we live in a black neighborhood there. You know, it's 60% African-American, 40% white. My daughter is in the midst of this. We keep her out of the news. You know, news isn't always on. So I wanted to have a good conversation about this. And you know what was funny? It was one of the most detached conversations we had had in a long time. And at some point, I wanted to shake her. And I'd be like, you're not taking me seriously. But the more that I looked into it, it's not that she didn't take me seriously. It's that she doesn't get it. Because at her school, some of her best friends are black. She spent the night at houses of people. She, This next generation does not see race as an issue at all, which is a victory. However, what that does to you and I is that puts us in a point of just false security where we're like, well, it's not an issue anymore, friends. And yes, it is an issue. It's a transitional issue. And just because things are getting better doesn't mean that it is no longer something that we need to speak to. Friends, it's still here. And that's why when we talk about this privilege that has been blessed upon certain power groups for centuries, we view it as normal and we say adjust to the normal. But friends, it's impossible for us to see the other aspect of this. And that is what the scriptures bid us do, is to see life through other people's eyes and to consider their prospects our own, to own their struggle as, as well. Friends, in social systems, and this is the issue that I think it really gets back to, and I hope I have this, 
I'm telling you that this entire issue comes back to this biblical concept that we see in 1 Kings chapter 12. And that is this. There is an air of insecurity. And the insecurity usually comes to majority groups. Do you see that? So it's like, wait, you have everything. Why would you feel insecure? Because you can understand in the darkest timelines of your life that there might be a time where you're not in the majority. And if you're not in the majority, how will you react? Friends, just to let you know here, number one, insecurity is not a sin, right? We see that within scriptures. We can wrestle with doubt. We can know the promises of God and still not always believe them, but that isn't a point of sin. That's a point of life and struggle. And what that insecurity does is develop within us a fear, right? That we're afraid that what we have might be gone. And it's similarly, it is not sin to be afraid. You're like, but the scriptures say over and over, do not be afraid. It's, it's, it's trying to pastor us into this aspect. The issue becomes when we allow our insecurity and fear to culminate in sinfulness. And this is the history of our country. And this is what the oppression of specifically African Americans, and more so than this just immigrants, has done for the longest time. And understand that this is all derived from our history. Because America was a great dream where we could all come and have our own. To be free and have possession. And then every generation a group of new people would come in. And there was a nativist movement toward immigrants to try to say, well, that's fine that you're in here, but we're still better than you. And what's funny is that we here today, a couple hundred years later, some of us have Irish ancestry, German ancestry, right? European ancestry that at one point our forefathers were persecuted, but they were able to assimilate. Why were they able to assimilate within generations so easily? Because there's no differentiation between us and the natives. That's why race is an issue within our country. Let me, um, Jeroboam's struggle is our, our struggle. It's what we do deal with. And we need to make sure that our insecurity and fear doesn't leave us to sin, lead us to sin. Um, so this is why we have to get here. This is why this is uncomfortable, right? Because I address something that I say is a truth. But then how do I grapple with that internally? And the first thing first is that we need not then feel as if we're wrong to be white or middle class, right? The problem is, is that we can't see this outside of other lenses. And this is an impugnment on us. It's not that that we have to be like, okay, I have to just just get rid of everything, you know, and go live someplace and self-identify because I am sinful, I am wrong. That's not what this is about. Don't make it about ourselves. What's about is us having the ability to project that on other people and see the lives that they lead. To in this time, instead of trying to defend certain perspectives that make sure that we can feel safe and secure and not be fear, that we are identifying with those who are gripped by fear, friends. And my black friends, my black friends are fearful. And it breaks my heart. So at a point in the sermon, my job is to say, okay, what now, right? And there's a lot of application I could offer here. We should pray for peace. You should befriend a black person. Hug a police officer. I could give you something to do, some action point, right? 
But here's one of the things that within preaching that I've found over the years. It's one of the reasons why I don't try to preach towards specific ills consistently is that when we focus on those ills, we actually usually screw up the process and we don't do well by it. But when we focus on God and who he is, when we focus on Jesus and all that he's about, and we see that, that usually has a transformative aspect on our actions. If I really believe the gospel, it should change how I act. And I would say the same thing for us today. Instead of you trying to say, well, this is what I need to do, donate to the NAACP, go march someplace, you know, tweet Blue Lives Matter. Instead of focusing on an outcome, can we just focus on this? Is that we live in a country where privilege, white privilege exists. And I would just say to grapple with that this week and then see where it takes you. And to be honest, if it takes us towards a path of more anger and trying to be safe and to keep us away from personal fear, then that outcome is not well. That's leading us to sin. Do you see that? If our desire to keep what we have so strong that we can't see anything else, then that's going to lead us to sin and that we will need forgiveness from. Just recognize the way of the world and be heartbroken about it. And you'll know what you need to do. So how do I land this plane, right? This is awkward. You guys didn't have to look at you. I had to look at you. I should have got my slide deck right. Then I wouldn't have had to not look at you and look there in my notes. This just got horrible. I was like, how am I going to land this plane? And no joke, at the end of this last week, I got an email from a pastor friend of mine from New York. Because he's just like, and we talked about this. Actually, he was in my doctoral program. And I talk about Cincinnati. I talk about, you know, we're in this neighborhood. There's a tension here. There's a tension that still exists because of new new residents coming in who are middle class and white and that the poor blacks here there's a tension within our very community and he knew that and he said steve i was thinking about this you this week and i wanted to give you this and this is what he gave me this is for you it's what he gave me the times look dark and as clouds grow thicker the stupidity of the nation seems to increase If the Lord didn't still have Christians here, I would be apprehensive, but he loves his children, even as they're sighing and mourning before him, and I'm sure he hears their sighs and sees their tears. I trust there's mercy in store for us at the end for all of this, but I expect that there's still more to go before we get into a right channel, before we're humbled and learn to give him the glory. The state of the nation and the state of churches are both deplorable. Those who should be praying are fighting among themselves. How many Christian leaders are more concerned for the mistakes of government than for their own sins? When will these things end? Now, my pastor friend sent me, but he didn't actually make this up. He got this from another pastor. And I will admit to slight doctoring of some of the verbiage because this was actually written at the end of the 18th century. In 1778. And what's interesting is this was also written (laughs) about the Revolutionary War by a British pastor. But I was just struck because he's like, you need to read this because when you just listen to the words, you're like, these words are applicable today. And it should make us feel good as I said, through all these moments, friends, whenever we're like, no, it's never been like this before. It's never been like, it has been. And God was still there. And we made it. And we won the Revolutionary War, which is this, okay. But you're like, okay, what was that about? This is what this is about, about this pastor. This pastor was an interesting man. 
Because this pastor lived a life that wasn't necessarily pastoral. Because through the first years of his life, he made jack. I'm talking sweet, sweet money. Pounds, if you will. He made all of the pounds. He was a slave trader. And he made his fortune by selling human beings who would be transported to the United States who became our neighbors and our friends. But the best thing about these stories, and this is what happens for us, this is where I think the application lies, friends. Again, I've been guilty. I, I have been guilty of neglecting my white privilege. Like, not neglecting it, but not acknowledging it. You know? As much as I want to bleed, the narrative of my family is one that they picked themselves on the bootstraps. They made it. And it's all about hard work. And friends, I was born with a pigmentation of skin. My family did that allowed them a quicker path to that. So I have to own my sins, right? You have to own your sins. This man had to own his sins. And the best way he knew was to transfer his life. And as he changed his ideology and realized that that is wrong to sell another human being. He became a staunch abolitionist and pushed for the end of slavery in the United Kingdom all over the world. And that man's name was John Newton. And if you don't know this aspect of the story, John Newton penned the song that we just sang earlier. John Newton recognize this is that even if I am drenched within this aspect of the past, even if it's bearing me down more so than anything what's it about? It's about grace it's about Jesus amazing grace how sweet the sound that's the lesson we need to take here friends, as, as the people of God we're not better, we're blessed and for those who are struggling we need to be there we need to be there. And that's why the words for all of this is the words that we read earlier is that just be strong. Don't be afraid. Even if you're fearful of what would happen. I've speculated, I've heard people online, here comes the race wars. It's going to be horrible. I don't see that happening, but you know what? It could actually happen. I wouldn't even know how to process that right now, right? I don't, I don't know how I would give that sermon. Don't get caught in the fear of what might be, will likely happen. Just give it to God. God will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. That's the cross. That's the message of the cross. That's why we commune every day, every week that we gather. We have communion and we remember this time because that's what Jesus does for us. So we're going to conclude our worship with a couple uh, things. We're going to have a time of communion. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake. Eat the bread, drink the cup, remember the cross and how that's transformed your lives. And then we're going to continue in worship. I'm going to pray. Let's commune. Heavenly Father, as I just wrestled with this this week and prayed about I'm not even sure how well that went because um, this is such a difficult topic because this cuts us to our core. And for those of us hurting here this morning, Father, um, about what has happened with somebody else or even maybe about where we're at. Maybe we have anger or fear. Father, your spirit is good and can relieve that from us. So we just, just pray your spirit come into us. But more, for, more so than anything, Father, help us to look abroad and see the plight of all these different people. Father, we're blessed. 
And again, in this room, some of us might be like, I'm not as blessed as some other. You know, yes, there's, there's levels to it. But Father, within their, this country, there's a tension. And as much as we want to look through social media posts to solve it, we know it's going to fail. When we look at the government's ability to solve it, we know that it will never be successful. Father, the only way this is going to happen is you. That your love transforms this country and these people. And that is our cause and plight. The cross. And like we do every week, we come back to the cross. Thanks for loving us. Thanks for giving us worth when we should be in your life worthless, in your eyes worthless. Thanks for sending your son to die and give all. We praise you. We praise him. Amen.